Well, it's been our focus last week and today to look at the final 15 verses of 1 Corinthians 14. And it is admittedly a flyover passage for many people, not wanting to get caught up in the details and in many cases confused by what they find when they do, or fearful of uh, perhaps being misunderstood or coming across as insensitive or whatever it might be. It's a section that is a mystery and a conundrum to a number of people, and consequently it goes unnoticed, undealt with by so many. And yet secretly people harbor questions in their heart when it comes to the issues of tongues and prophecy. Those questions are there not because the Scripture doesn't answer them and not because it isn't clear, but because sometimes we don't do the labor to find out exactly what the Scripture does give to us. And what we find in this passage is one of the clearest and one of the most explicit passages regarding the regulation and the and the, the, the restrictions, we would say, the guidelines for the gifts of tongues and prophecy. And we've been trying to work our way through it so that we can clearly understand exactly what the Lord's will is, so that we're no longer children tossed here and there by every wave and wind of doctrine, so that we are well-grounded and discerning when it comes to these things, which are in many cases on the rise in our own nation. But even beyond our borders around the world are utterly rampant throughout Christianity, globally speaking. But as I said, it's not as if the guidelines, it's not as if the teaching is unclear. It is just ignored. As a matter of fact, we have begun to look at this last week, how Paul spells out for us in very clear tones exactly what a church ought to follow exactly the approach it ought to take when it comes to these gifts. And it is certainly clear that that was not taking place in Corinth. They seem to be operating with no guidelines, with no restrictions, with uh, sort of no resistance, no structure whatsoever. And Paul even anticipates that as he writes this, that they will be less than receptive to what he has to say here. As a matter of fact, you'll remember he has to even add at the end of this section in verse 37 and 38, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If he doesn't recognize this, he's not recogn- he is not recognized. So there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of restrictions. There wasn't a lot of discipline. There wasn't a lot of regulations. There wasn't a lot of structure. And Paul anticipates all of that, and and he even probably gives us a clue as to what was going on in verse 26 when he says, when everyone comes together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation, and the implication being that they all wanted to share it all at the same time. That there was a sense of pandemonium and chaos when it came to all of these various contributions, all of these various gifts, and especially when it came to tongues and prophecy. Paul wants then to sort of lay down these very specific rules, these very specific restrictions. And in some sense, the the reasons why he gave them, why he gives these restrictions, the reasons he's laying them down, that is the bigger picture. I mean, that's really what chapters 12 and 13 and much of 14 is already laid out for us. This is almost the application at the end. And yet we can't forget the big picture. We can't forget the reason why Paul is giving these restrictions to begin with. You remember, first of all, he's giving restrictions regarding tongues because he says that a mature understanding about the gift of tongues is they're not even intended for the church. Tongues are not intended for believers. 
In fact, Paul says in verse 19, he himself would never even use the gift of tongues in church if he has the option. He wouldn't. He would rather speak five words with his understanding than 10,000 with a tongue. So, so he's told us back in verses 20 through 22, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. That's the mature understanding. Nevertheless, apparently the Corinthians were insistent on speaking in tongues, even if it was immature, as we've seen already in a number of places in Corinth, they were going to press ahead with their, with their infantile understanding of many things. And so in that context, Paul writes this as a concession, that if you're going to insist on it, let it be with severe restrictions. As we saw last week, no more than two or three speaking at a time. Secondly, the chaos that was taking place in Corinth was incongruent, not only with a mature understanding of these gifts, but it was incongruent with the whole fruit of the Spirit. Remember, these people who were claiming to be spiritual at the same time apparently were claiming to not be able to control what they were saying. They were being led away, they would say, by all of these gifts similar as they were with their pagan backgrounds. And this is just completely out of line with everything we know about the Holy Spirit, who we're told in Galatians chapter 5 gives us self-control. And so when Paul writes what he says here, he writes against that background, against that understanding that whoever operates a gift of the Spirit is going to be able to operate it under self-control. So he gives restrictions, he gives guidelines here that assume that people can speak or not speak whenever they choose because their gift is always operating in that fashion. They're never, in other words, overwhelmed. They're never taken away or or carried away by the impulses that might arise within them. Thirdly, Paul's giving these because the chaotic worship at at Corinth was incongruent with the nature and character of genuine worship, which Paul tells us ought to reflect God. And he says it there in verse 33, God's not a God of confusion, but of peace. He says it again at the end, all things should be done decently in order. And the reason they need to be done decently in order is because that's what God's character is like. God's character is orderly. God's character is peaceful. God's character is coherent. And by contrast, that which is disorderly, that which is unpeaceful, that which is incoherent, and that which is chaotic doesn't reflect God. It doesn't reflect spirituality, and it doesn't reflect true worship. True worship is orderly. True worship is harmonious. True worship is peaceful. And then finally, Paul's been telling us that this chaotic worship at Corinth is incongruent with the whole goal of edification. When he says there at the end of verse 26, let all things be done for building up, he's just simply summarizing what he said over and over and over again already throughout all these chapters, that people need to be edified and that edification comes through intelligibility or comes through understanding or we would say comes through cognitive reception. They have to understand what's going on if they're going to be built up, if they're going to be edified. Unfortunately, that wasn't happening at Corinth. As we said, pandemonium, as all people were trying to speak at the same time, no one could distinguish one voice above another. No one could recognize what was being said. No one understood anything above all the noise, and therefore no one was being edified. So against all of that, Paul wants to put some serious restrictions on their use of of their gifts, particularly the gift of tongues, and the gift of prophecy, so it can come back in line with a mature understanding of the gift, back in line with true spirituality, back in line with godly, orderly worship, and back in line with what edification, or which I should say what leads to edification. And so as we've been seeing over the last uh, last week and, and even today, Paul list these restrictions. He gives all these restrictions, beginning, you remember, with restrictions on the gift of tongues, where he 
basically outlines in verse 27. First of all, that they had to limit the number of people to two or three. Secondly, that they couldn't speak simultaneously. They had to each speak in turn. Thirdly, that they were only to speak if someone interpreted. And then fourthly, if there's no interpreter, they had to remain silent. They had to keep it to themselves because it's unintelligible, it's unfruitful, and therefore it's unedifying and it's unnecessary within the church. Well, today we want to move beyond that uh, first restriction, move beyond that, 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 that larger paradigm of the gift of tongues. And we want to pay, uh, take note of the, the other restrictions. Paul gives us three more in this section that all are sort of addressing this chaotic um, and this uh, upheaval that's taking place in the Corinthian church. So he moves beyond the restriction regarding the gift of tongues to restrictions for the gifts of prophecy. And these follow a similar pattern to what he's already said about tongues, basically giving three very similar guidelines followed up by three reasons, if you will, three justifications or explanations for why these are necessary. First of all, just like with tongues, he again limits the number of prophets who can speak. Let two, he says in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. So whatever the nature of prophecy was at this time, one thing is clear that Paul did not expect there to be an overabundance of prophets or prophecies in every surface. That, that is to say, whatever Paul's expectation of was uh, of how God would move and God would reveal himself and God would speak, he assumed it wouldn't be more than two people or at the most three people every service. Paul certainly would not want to be found in the position of restricting the work of the Holy Spirit if he wanted to to speak to his people. But he doesn't expect that. And so he lays down this, this, this limitation of two or three prophets speaking each time. I remember going to a charismatic service, uh, I don't know, five, six years ago. And as the service sort of went on uh, for an hour or two, there was a mic off to the side. There was an open mic for prophecy. And People lined up, and as the service went on, you had people who would go up to the mic and give some sort of prophecy, and then sometimes even during the music, the people on the stage would stop and give some sort of prophecy, and it just went on and on and on, and I'm just I'm just sort of inquisitive person, so I went up to the leader afterward, and I said, I'm just curious, um, why don't you guys follow the biblical restriction on two or three prophets? He says, there's no restriction. I couldn't believe it. I mean, this is as clear as you can be. I mean, Paul couldn't be more explicit because he, he had some expectation, he had some notion that, that whatever God was going to do by way of prophecy, he wasn't going to do in abundance all the time. So he says there needs to be limits, limits on the number of prophets. Secondly, when they speak, the congregation needs to evaluate these prophets. They need to test them. That's what he says in the second half of verse 29. Let the others weigh what is said. The others apparently refers to the congregation. He uses a word here, alos, which typically means the others of a different class of people, different kind. So probably not the prophets, but the, all the rest of the people. And we know that this is a responsibility for all of us anyway, Right? I mean, over and over again, we read in Scripture, like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. And that is a command that's given to all of you, that, that it is your job to be discerning. It's your job to, to evaluate. And even John gives a general charge to all believers. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So there's this, there's this general call within the New Testament for all believers to test prophets. 
Because just like John, Paul did not want any such thing as an untested prophet. He knew that that was a violation of not only sound-minded leadership, but a violation of God's will when it comes to prophecies, even in the Old Testament. That is to say, anyone who stood to speak for God must be critiqued, I should say. They must be evaluated. They must be weighed. It must be discerned whether or not they are speaking for God or from God, I should say, or whether or not they're speaking from some other source, their own flesh, or maybe even a demonic spirit. The prophecy was to be evaluated. Now, Paul doesn't give us in this particular passage how to do that. He just says you need to do it. You need to test. But we know from other places what some of those tests were. I mean, even back over in chapter 12, verse 3, you remember he says very clearly, look, no one speaking by the Spirit of God says that Jesus is accursed. In other words, there's, a, there's just a basic doctrinal test. I mean, there's some doctrinal truths that you ought to know. And whenever a, spirit, whenever a prophet speaks, claiming to speak by the Spirit of God, if he violates that, you know it's not from God. Or more specifically, if you were to go to Romans chapter 12, verse 6, Paul says, anyone who prophesies must do so in proportion to the faith. Analogion tes pistuos is the word, the analogy of the faith. That is to say that they need to prophesy according to the faith. That is the received Doctrine, the body of doctrine, the body of truth that had been handed down by the apostles. So if you're going to be a prophet, you have to, first of all, pass this doctrinal test. That's even, remember, here in chapter 14, just down in verse 36. Paul says, look, if you're a prophet, you need to understand that what I am saying is a commandment of God. In other words, you need to affirm truth. You need to affirm sound doctrine. And if you don't, well, you're a false prophet. I mean, it's pretty easy. It's a pretty easy test. This is the same kind of testing, by the way, that you found in the Old Testament. If a prophet stood up to speak and violated a doctrinal test, he was a false prophet. Uh, Deuteronomy 13, in verse 1, sort of the... the um, primary text when it comes to testing prophets. Moses says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you've not known, or let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams, For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. So this has always been the standard for a prophet. He's always to be evaluated according to what he teaches. And if he teaches false doctrine, if he teaches unsound doctrine, well, in the Old Testament, the penalty was clear. It was immediate death. In the New Testament, he's to be rejected out of hand. Or Deuteronomy 18 sort of reiterates it from a different perspective. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I've not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? I mean, that's a legitimate question, right? I mean, if he's supposed to be speaking for God, how are we going to know? Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word doesn't come to pass or come true, that's the word the Lord hasn't spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. So here's... Here's at least two clear criteria for judging prophets. I mean, on one hand, if he says anything that's not in line with sound doctrine, anything that doesn't accord with the doctrine that's been passed down by the apostles, he's a false prophet. 
On the other hand, if he does, says something in, in an effort to predict the future and it doesn't come absolutely true, he's a false prophet. And you could add to that, we don't need to go through it, but you could add to that the admonitions given in Timothy that if he has a life that is inconsistent with a prophet, one marked by greed and sexual immorality and abuse, he's a false prophet. So you need to test him, Paul says. You need to test him to find out whether this person who's speaking is not speaking presumptuously in the name of God. Now, this would have been important in the early days of the church, particularly at this point. I've mentioned to you in the past, the book of 1 Corinthians was written in about 55 A.D., at which point there were two or maybe three New Testament letters or books that had been written. And they had only been written for a couple of years and probably had not even been copied and circulated around other churches. And so I, it's safe to say that in 55 AD, at the point where Paul's writing this letter to Corinth, most churches and probably Corinth himself had no written scripture in the New Testament. They had no New Testament scripture. And so consequently, when they were establishing the church, what they needed was some sort of guidance. What they needed was something that could tell them some basic things. For example, guidance on matters on how to select leaders. Paul tells us, for example, that Timothy was selected by the laying on of hands of prophets. Or they needed uh, maybe guidance on decisions. When prophets spoke in the New Testament, for example, Agabus spoke to Paul regarding a decision that he had to make regarding ministry. At other points, God revealed himself to the apostle about which territories he ought to be going into in order to minister. So we understand that prophets were useful before any scripture was written to give church guidance on specific matters of leadership, ministry decisions, and we assume as well on confrontation of sin. That's largely what prophets did in the Old Testament. They often were confronting people on issues of sin. And so this is how prophets were probably operating. They operated for the first 50 years or so of the church while churches were around the world were receiving and copying and then circulating various books of the New Testament. There was a need to have specific guidance and instruction while that process was taking place. Still, while these prophets were active, while they were functioning, they functioned according to the doctrine that was given by the apostles. These apostles were the ones who had authority over all the churches. Prophets, it appears, served in a local fashion, functioning for the local needs of each community. Ephesians 2.20 says this is God's paradigm. He used apostles and he used prophets for the laying of the early foundation stones of the church. Well, just like tongues, there's a movement afoot today wanting to claim that while this gift, the gift of prophecy, along with the gift of tongues, has been absent from the church for 1,800 years, that there is some sort of restoration taking place. There's a, there's a movement out there, and it's large, wanting to convince you and wanting to convince me that God is once again giving revelation to prophets. And the 20th century is littered with the rubbish of false prophecies given by false prophets over and over and over again. Whether it's the televangelists who have failed time and time again from everything, uh, everything from proclaiming certain people to be healed to declaring the end of the world, or whether it's on a local fashion where people are always coming up to their friends and saying, God told me to tell you X, Y, and Z. And there's always this attempt to now presumptuously speak for God. And yet it has no resemblance whatsoever to what you see as prophecy in the, in the Scripture. 
perhaps uh, perhaps most um, glaringly or, or one of the examples that stands out in my mind was about a decade ago, a man standing on a stage while someone prophesies over him talking about how he was going to be a worldwide leader and people were going to come to salvation in troves and many people will be healed and there will be resurrections from the dead and all these things were being spoken over this man in prophecy just before he sadly drops to his death on the stage. In fact, some people were so gullible, they actually held vigil for two days expecting the man to be raised from the dead. But this is the scene today. And people aren't evaluating prophets anymore. And they speak error after error after error and get away with it in the name of God. It's a tragedy. And it's a violation of everything taught about prophets, not just in the Old Testament, but even in the New. Because of the nature of prophecy, because of their... uh, zeal in order to resurrect these gifts because of the scrutiny being brought against the ministries of prophets today charismatics are increasingly calling for the acceptance of a different standard that is to say that while they recognize that in the old testament prophets were held to a standard of infallibility there's an increasing call among charismatics today to accept what they call fallible prophets that is to say that, that, that they want us to believe that when the prophetic word comes to them, that somehow it is clouded, it is distorted by the weakness of their human flesh, so that when they actually stand to proclaim it, there is now some sort of admixture of both truth and error in what they speak. In fact, some of these charismatic scholars suggest that this is exactly what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 14. That when he, when he calls for this evaluation process, that somehow he is suggesting that the congregation is supposed to pick through the words spoken and find the parts that they consider to be from God and find the parts that they consider not to be from God. Now, how in the world they're supposed to do that, we're never told. And how in the world that a congregation who may in fact be hearing a word from a prophet confronting their sin is supposed to discern through that the parts of the prophecy that they want to receive and the parts of the prophecy that they don't want to receive, how in the world you're supposed to weed out those groups that are only going to receive what tickles their ear and resist what confronts their heart and how they're supposed to discern all of that in the various words of the prophets we're never told. The whole situation is problematic, to say the least. Because in fact, nowhere are we ever told that God's standard for those who speak in His name have ever changed. That somehow God would be less concerned today than He was 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago over people who speak presumptuously in His name. I mean, the whole reason that the standard was set to begin with, the whole reason it was so high is because once someone stands up to declare that God has directly revealed something to them, That person and their words now directly have a bearing on the way people view God's character. And there was there there is the 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 opportunity, there is the 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 opening that if they're gonna stand and they're gonna speak error, that people are going to begin to attribute the error to God. Their faith is gonna be undermined, their walk is gonna be caused to stumble. And in the end, there will be blasphemy. There will be blasphemy. There's no indication that God has ever given a different standard than that which has already been laid out for us in the Old Testament, that which is clarified in the New Testament. Listen, all that Paul is doing here in Corinthians, 
is simply asking the church to do what every believer needed to do when someone proclaimed to speak for God. Just don't let them speak without testing them. Don't let them proclaim some prophecy unless you evaluate them, unless you find out whether they're speaking from their own fleshly heart or whether they're speaking from God. Thirdly, Paul says not only do they need to be evaluated, they also need to yield to other prophets. Verse 30, if a revelation comes to another sitting there, let the first be silent. And here we understand clearly what this prophecy is all about. This isn't just uh, another way of talking about those who might open up the Scripture and study a passage and come up with some thoughts and then come to share them like a teacher. It's very clear from what he's saying that this prophecy comes supernaturally on a person and in some cases instantaneously on these prophets. There may have been some prophets, just like there were in the Old Testament, who received a revelation from God, who, who heard it and were committed that message to be delivered at a different place at a different time. Some prophets would travel for days in the Old Testament before they finally delivered their message. And maybe even in the New Testament, some prophets would receive a word middle week and not deliver it until the, until the uh, uh, worship service came along. But Paul says, even then, if you are speaking, if you are standing and explaining your prophecy and a word comes to another prophet, you need to be silent. You need to sit down. You need to, to allow or yield to these other prophets so that God can speak through them. Prophecy then is very clear. It's the supernatural knowledge given by God that goes beyond the capabilities of man to know by his natural processes. This is, by the way, you remember, this is the way Paul talked about his own prophetic knowledge back in chapter 2 when he says, look, what, I, what eye hasn't seen, what ear hasn't heard, what hasn't entered into the heart of man, these are the things that God reveals to us. In other words, things I could never learn by observation, things I could never learn by hearing, things I could never learn by philosophical musing, those are the revelations. Those are the prophetic words. That's the nature of prophecy. So Paul recognizes that God may supernaturally grant that kind of revelation to someone in the middle of a worship service. In such situations, a prophet needs to yield to others. Because even though a prophecy came by supernatural knowledge, it didn't come in a way that overwhelmed or caused the prophet to lose control. So he says in verse 31... Whenever you're speaking these prophecies, you need to do this. You need to be silent so that you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So he's kind of given the restrictions now. Now he wants to begin to give explanation on why all this is necessary, why all this takes place. He says, first of all, it's necessary so that everyone can learn. Verse 31. So that everyone can be instructed. He uses the word montano there. Basically indicates a process of comprehension. A process of understanding. And often is translated as teaching or instruction. So probably indicates that while uh, the prophets would give their prophecy. There was probably also a time of explanation that came with it. There was a time of instruction. There might have even been a time of question and answer. So he says, you need to do this. You need to do it in an orderly fashion. You need to do it one by one so that, so that whenever you, you speak, everyone can learn. Everyone can benefit. Everyone can understand. He also gives a second reason here because the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. He uses spirit here just like he did back in verse 15 to speak about the spiritual capacity within the prophet. He says there all. I'll, I'll sing with the Spirit, I'll sing with my mind, I'll pray with the Spirit, I'll pray with my mind. So he's saying here, this, this Spirit within you, the Spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophets. 
Again, they're not going to be carried away in some frenzy. They're not going to be overpowered by some inner compulsion. They will have the ability to restrain their speech, to wait their turn, to even be silent if two or three prophets have already spoken. And then finally, Paul gives a third reason for these restrictions, and that is simply the nature of God. Every spiritual gift, everything a prophet did, everything that took place, as a matter of fact, in the worship service, Needed to reflect the character of God. That's why he adds verse 33. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So all these restrictions are all for the same reasons that he gave restrictions with tongues. So that the entire church can be edified. So that their worship wouldn't be chaotic. So that whatever is shared is is comprehensible to everyone. And so that their worship ultimately mirrors God's character. That, by the way, is why he also gives the third set of restrictions. The restrictions regarding women. Restrictions regarding women. Second half of verse 33 probably sort of introduces this. When Paul says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Now, this is, uh, this is also addressing what must have been a chaotic situation in the Corinthian church. That there were apparently reports, or at least something in Paul's mind, uh, that somehow needed to be addressed to the women that they were usurping their role, that they were disrupting the service, that they were not honoring the Lord in the way that they conducted themselves, and particularly, they weren't keeping silent. Now, he's not talking about silence in general. He's not saying that a woman can't do things like sing hymns and songs along with the church. He's certainly not suggesting that the moment a woman shows up at church, she can't fellowship um, you know, in the times of fellowship before and after the worship service. This silence has to do specifically with what Paul's talking about in this context. That is to say that Paul has in mind silence during the formal gathering of worship and particularly in the areas of tongues and prophecy. And he says, this is the way it is in all the churches. In other words, this was a universal practice among all the churches. Women would not participate in public speaking or in leadership or in teaching or in prophecy or in any of those things. And apparently, it even came down to the issue of questions. Because he says in verse 35... If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in the church. And you say, well, what's this all about? I mean, why is this silence? What are these questions? Uh, you're a lady, you might be saying, what is it? Is it wrong for me to be curious, to want to know? Well, probably, just given what Paul's talking about here, these are questions related to the evaluation of these prophets. That is to say, if there is a period of testing, if there is a period of evaluation, you assume that that evaluation would involve some cross-examination. You assume that it would involve some, some questioning of these men who were speaking. And what Paul's simply saying here is that that is not the role of the women. That the evaluation of these prophets, and by extension, we might even say the evaluation of leadership in the church, that is not the role for these women to be taking on themselves. If they have questions, and indeed they might, it is their place to ask their husbands at home because it would be usurping the role of submission to try to ask these questions, to try to voice these questions in the church. Now, please understand what he's saying here. He's not suggesting that your only teacher in all matters of doctrine and theology can be your husband. That's not the point. The point is is not that you can never ask another man in any situation what the Bible is about. Some people onerously have tried to impose that on some women. 
He's not suggesting that women shouldn't bother to come to church, as some, uh, some Mennonite groups have done in the past and created all-male worship services because the only time that women can learn is at home with their husbands around the fire. None of that is in his mind. He, he, he seemingly is talking about this all in the context of this disruption taking place in the service and this disruptive uh, 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 guidelines that, that he's trying to lay down, to, I should say, to address the disruption where women, no doubt, were, were questioning even some of these prophecies. He says that's not their role. And it's not their role, he says, because first of all, it's shameful for women to speak in the church. And more importantly, that God's word has clearly established that they shouldn't. You say, well, where? Where does it say that? Well, to begin with, it says it in the, in the law. That's what Paul says, right? Verse 34, they shouldn't speak in the church as the law also says. Which law? Well, it's not a specific law. Paul's using the word law here in the general sense. The first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, often referred to in Jewish thinking as the Torah, which is basically the word law, and was, was simply uh, uh, referred to under that rubric. And so when Paul is referring to the law here, what he's referring to was those first five books, and most particularly to the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. And the reason we know that is because everywhere else where Paul addresses issues of male and female participation, issues of the roles of men and women in the church, he always appeals back to Genesis. We saw it back in chapter 11 when Paul was talking about men and women there, and he goes back and he refers to God's design within the Garden of Eden when he says in verse 7, man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man wasn't made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So he's obviously talking about the creation account. He's talking about the early days when man was made. He's saying this is the design by God. By the way, you turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2, you see the same thing. Paul addresses women. He says they're not to, have, to teach and they're not to hold positions of authority over men. And he says the reason for that is because of the way God designed. In other words, this is all the principle, this is all consistent with the created order. A lot of people would tell you when it comes to the hierarchy or the roles of men and women in the church that it is simply the byproduct, it's simply the distortion or the corruption of sinful man who is trying to impose in some sort of chauvinistic way his own exaltation but it's really a reflection of a corrupted mind and a corrupted heart. That in a perfect world, that all people would be equal, men and women would have absolute equality. Well, guess what? There's only ever once been a perfect world, and in that world, there was an equality. And that's what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about what happened after sin came into the world. He's not talking about what happened after man's heart became corrupted. He's not talking about what happened after the fall. He's talking about what happened before sin came. And what he's saying is, before sin ever came, God made man first, woman second, and he created her, according to Genesis, as a helpmate. Far from being degradation. This is the, the pathway to exaltation. And everywhere you look in Scripture, when it comes to talk about women, this is what it says. Paul even refers to it in 1 Timothy chapter 2. God's given roles to women which complement the roles of men. But one of them in particular in childbearing, he says, this is, this is her salvation. This is the, the exalted role that women have in God's created design. They, they are the vehicles and the vessels for producing life, the wonderful bonds according to God's design that come in the family 
are rooted so strongly in the relationships that we have with our moms. So this is God's design, Paul says. This is why it's shameful for a woman to usurp this design. This is why it's shameful for a woman to try to take up leadership in the church. This is why it's shameful for a woman to want to be involved with this with this scrutinizing process, this judging of prophets, this identifying of leaders, this clarification in this public setting of doctrine. Now, it doesn't mean that women are doctrinally ignorant. It doesn't mean that they're incapable. In fact, we would have clues, we would have indications that within other contexts, women were involved. Sometimes in, in uh, instruction and clarification and dialogue when it came to doctrine. Most famously, at the end of Acts 15, a man named Apollos comes to town and begins to teach mightily from the Scriptures. And we're told in that passage that it was not only Aquila, but also his wife Priscilla, who took Apollos aside and instructed him more faithfully in the ways of God. And so there's every indication that a woman ought to have a robust theology. She ought to have an inquisitive mind. She ought to be seeking after truth and growing deep in the Word of God. And in many cases, she ought to be engaged in theological dialogue. She should stand toe-to-toe with any man to be able to speak when it comes to God's Word. But in the corporate gathering of the church, there's a restriction. Now, someone is going to ask, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? When does it become a corporate gathering of the church? When do women no longer uh, ask questions? What does that look like? Well, I'm I'm not going to tell you because I don't know. I mean, all I know is there's three people over here, Aquila, Priscilla, and Apollos, and there's a bunch of people over here, and Paul says they should be quiet, and somewhere in between. God's judgment, your discernment is going to have to tell you when that is. The main thing is that as a lady who wants to honor God, that no matter how you conduct yourself and no matter when the setting is, that you understand that there's a role that God has assigned to you that is glorious, a role that reflects and honors Him, that is consistent with His Word, that operates according to order and structure and harmony, and peace. And you ought to always be seeking that. So that even if in casual meetings and small group Bible studies, you feel free in your conscience to ask questions, you should do so in a submissive and in a gentle and quiet spirit. Because this is what honors the Lord. So Paul lays down these restrictions. Not just for tongues, Not just for prophecy, but also for the women. And then finally, he gives restrictions regarding authority. Restrictions regarding authority. If you think you're a prophet, if you think you're spiritual, then there's a cap even then on your authority. That's what he says. Was it? Sort of sarcastically, he asked in verse 36, was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. Pretty clear at this point, Paul's laid down the regulations. He spelled out the restrictions and all of the guidelines. And so he sort of just as a final note to all of those with self-exalted spirituality, with with grandiose claims to prophecy, he just lays it out very plain. If you think that you're a prophet, here's one simple test. You will abide by everything that I've written so far. You will abide by these guidelines. I mean, that doesn't require a lot of explanation unless you kind of take that paradigm and use that as a measure 
of the modern day charismatic movement. In fact, one of the greatest indictments, perhaps the greatest indictment of the modern charismatic movement is their refusal in seemingly every corner to submit to basic regulations that Paul lays down here. I mean, it's amazing to me. You couldn't find a passage of Scripture more explicit, more simple, more clear, step-by-step guidelines to follow, and yet time and time again, for well over a hundred years now, charismatics, Pentecostals, third-wave people, now fourth-wave charismatics, consistently ignore and refuse to submit to these basic regulations. And I think the reason is because they understand that to submit to all of this is to mean the death of their movement. I mean, if you just take the issue of tongues, for example, if modern-day charismatics were simply to yield to this and submit themselves to not letting any but two or three people speak at a time and then always one at a time and then always require an interpreter, they clearly understand what would happen. Their movement would die. It would die. Because the difficulty of those regulations would squelch it and plus it would it would not attract the hordes of people who were attracted to that movement simply out of a desire of showmanship. Not to mention all of the internal strife and turmoil that sometimes creeps up whenever people try to, to engage in interpretation and offend one another. The tongue speaker is offended by the interpreter because he didn't say what the person wanted him to say. Or if they tried to even... Follow the guidelines of prophecy so that every prophet had to be tested and every, every prophet had to meet the same criteria that laid out in Scripture, the absolute infallibility. And if they ever said anything about the future, it had to come 100% true and they were always required to be consistent with, with doctrine. If they ever spoke doctrinal deviation, they would be labeled a false prophet. If they tried to instill those criteria, the movement would die. Because nothing taking place today has any resemblance to biblical prophecy. It has to. It has to be governed by a different standard. Their uh, charismatic movement is crying out for us to accept a different standard because they recognize that over and over and over again there's foul, fallibility, there's, there's falsehoods mixed in with their prophecy. And just as a footnote, by the way, even the restrictions on women... Because if you haven't paid attention lately, the charismatic movement is absolutely dominated by a feminist movement. It is dominated by women usurping their roles, dominated by women women wanting to stand in the pulpit, dominated by women wanting to teach, dominated by women speaking in tongues, dominated by women wanting to give prophecy. And in God's wisdom and for whatever reason, uh, this particular restriction that Paul gives here ironically becomes one of the biggest rebukes to the charismatic movement. And so Paul makes it very plain. You want to be a prophet? You want to claim that these gifts are active among you? Here's a simple test. Just do what I say and just acknowledge it's a command of God. Then we'll know. Then we'll know. Throws in here, closing comments. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now, we understand that that is a qualified statement at this point. Because, let's face it, Paul just forbade speaking in tongues. If you're not one of the first two or three then he's absolutely restricted you from speaking in tongues. So when he says this in verse 39, we have to read it in the context of everything else that he said, right? 
And so we understand that whatever he's saying here, it's a qualified statement. In other words, we should read this in light of everything else that Paul said. If, if you understand what we've said about tongues, if you understand what we've said about prophecy, if you're willing to follow all of the restrictions, if you're willing to be held to all of the criteria and to be evaluated and judged according to what we say, if all of that is true, then you can desire prophecy and then you cannot forbid the speaking in tongues. But still, he says, all things need to be done decently and in order. I've met people in the years who have been opposed to the charismatic movement and, you know, you ask them, well, you know, how did you arrive at that conclusion? And they say, well, it's just the Bible. You know, I just read the Bible and it makes it clear. Well, I don't know if I would necessarily say it quite that strong. I, I, I know that charismatics, many of them who are in the charismatic movement would tell you, at least they would give testimony. The reason they're there is some experience. And so they begin, tend to be experientially driven. And, and I've begun to think about this myself. And I, I think I would even say, for me, the reason that I'm not a charismatic, the reason I believe that these gifts are no longer active in the modern church is at least partly because of my experience. That is to say, having read everything I could read in the Scripture about these gifts, having understood everything I can understand about what the Scripture does teach, I then take that and I evaluate my experience with people who claim to speak in tongues, with people who claim to be prophets, with people who write books on all these subjects. And my experience tells me that whatever is going on in that movement doesn't ring true. It doesn't stand up to these standards. So by a combination of biblical, biblically informed criteria, biblically informed insight, and personal contact and frequent interaction with charismatics, I am continually brought back to the same point. That while God maybe in 55 A.D., was still operating within the church through prophets. And Paul would encourage them to seek that out in their day. In our modern day, these gifts no longer appear to be active. Now what we have isn't tongues. Now what we have isn't prophecy. What we have is a completed New Testament canon. A completed New Testament word. And it is that which gives us our guidance, our doctrine, our instruction, our hope, our truth. It's that that we hold to. Whereas before we, they would seek prophecy, today we'll seek it in God's Word. Where He's given to us prophetic Word made more sure, as Peter says. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. While you're standing, I just want to say, you may be here today and you're not a Christian. And maybe one of the reasons you're not a Christian is because you've looked at churches and you've turned on the TV and all you have seen is the chaos and the confusion and the pandemonium that goes on in the name of Christ. And you've looked at those people and you think they're just mad. Well, we're here to tell you we do too. We're saddened by all that takes place in the name of Christ. By the many ways that God's misrepresented by false prophets and by those who speak presumptuously in His name. But be not confused. It is not an indication that God's not true or that somehow His Word fails. God's Word is always true. God's name is always holy. His way is always right. Pathway is always sure. And so if you're here today and you're not following God, if you're here today and you haven't really come to know Christ, we want to share with you from the Word of God exactly what God's Word says about you, about the judgment that you'll face one day because of your sin. 
and about the salvation that God provides if you'll give your heart and your life to Him. So when we close here in a moment uh, with a word of prayer and with song, I want to encourage you, if you don't know Christ, if you're here today and you would like to know what God's Word says uh, about the truth of salvation, please come find me after. I'd love to take the time, whatever time necessary, to open up the Word of God and show you the pathway of salvation. Father, we're grateful this morning for a clear word. You've given to us everything we need for life and godliness. And Lord, we are, we are laboring over even these things because we so desire for your name to be honored, for your word to be upheld, for your truth to be clear, for people to be led to a place of salvation. Father, we pray that you would do that even today. Help us to think clearly, to no longer be children tossed here and there by every wind and wave of doctrine. Help us to be firmly grounded in the truth, defenders ably of your word, standing always for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.